So we live in a, a consumeristic society, as Pastor Timon mentioned. Uh, we are conditioned by this consumeristic society to believe that fulfillment and joy and satisfaction comes in consuming or acquiring things, whether that be experiences like holidays or relationships or whether that be possessions like clothing or appliances or a house. And uh, as time goes on, it becomes easier to acquire these possessions with the technology we have at the click of a button, we can place an order for something that seems to satisfy a need within us and we'll have that very quickly. And the irony of this is as we continue to actually consume more and more things, we actually grow in discontentment and dissatisfaction. And this is consumerism's goal. Like Consumerism's goal is actually to give you a false or a simulated sense of happiness or fulfillment. Because if you actually achieved sustainable happiness or fulfillment, then you would stop consuming things. Because you'd be satisfied. And that's not good news for a consumeristic society. And so everything around you in this world is designed to increase your appetite for something that will never satisfy you. It's designed to give you an insatiable appetite for more. It's actually supposed to make you feel incomplete. And so the mindset of the modern consumers is very much like, oh, well, when I have this or when I get this, then I'll be satisfied. And for you, that may be when I get this job, this job status that I want, this title, when I get this relationship, when I get this product, then I'll, I'll feel a sense of completeness. And this idea of, of living, this consumeristic idea of living, is very foreign, almost total opposite to a biblical view of discipleship, to what the Bible describes as following Jesus, which talks more about self-denial and contentment in Christ and considering all things loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And so while our society operates on the basis that we purchase or consume things to find completeness, the gospel actually tells us that someone else purchases something or achieves something for our completeness. And this narrative that we're going to talk about today, this story of the cross, talks about completeness. It shows Christ's completed work on the cross and it culminates in that very famous statement in verse 30 of it is finished. And this is really what we're going to focus on today. So I hope you'll, you'll excuse me if we kind of very briefly go through this narrative all the way up to verse 30. We're just going to spend the bulk of our time there. There's probably like 50 or 100 different ways that you could preach this sermon and I'm going to kind of rush through it in order to get to it is finished because there's so much in that message there that not only is so important for us to, to understand the completed work of redemption that was purchased on the cross that is our sins completely washed away Christ's blood is so pure and able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and so when Christ on the cross said it is finished our sins 
as we read out in that scripture earlier, were nailed to the cross, and so that's finished. But this has huge implications for how we are to live right now, particularly in this consumeristic society. And so as we follow this story from verse 16, uh, it leads up to Jesus on the cross, and you would have last week gone through uh, the trial, and Jesus has now been handed over to the Roman soldiers, as was the demands of the Jewish leaders. He's, he's led out in just shameful and humiliating fashion. He's likely already been beaten several times at this stage before the cross. And reading through this story, there's actually great irony in that the most significant moment in human history is occurring right now. And in this most significant moment in human history, those who are closest to him, those who were some of the last to interact with Jesus in this significant moment, seem to be more concerned with things like grammar and semantics with the Jews and Pilate arguing what should be written on the cross, or they're more concerned with gambling and fashion with the, the Roman soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothing. All the while, this God, heaven and earth, this God-man, Jesus Christ, is dying on a cross. And we should see two extremes here. We should see both how far humanity has fallen into sinfulness, into ignorance, into wickedness, but we should also see how far God is willing to condescend, to come down in order to redeem us out of that ignorance. And so this should be convicting and liberating for us, convicting because we have to realize that apart from the grace of God in Christ, we actually identify best with those who are ignoring Jesus and who are rejecting him. But it should be liberating because we realize that Christ identifies with the lowest of the low. We see that through all his life and this picture on the cross and we realize that there's no one too sinful, too shameful, too much of an outcast that Christ's blood cannot cleanse and bring into reconciliation with God the Father. And only when you realize who you first identify with, apart from God's grace, will you actually understand the extent of the cross and the completeness that this brings. So this is what I want to focus on today, how complete this is. And so we're just going to zoom in on uh, the last part of this passage and particularly on verse 30 and those words it is finished which shows the completeness that Christ brings on the cross which has huge implications as I said for us now living in this consumeristic society and so what if let me pose a question to you what if it was possible to live a life where rather than being consumed by insatiable desires for more and more what if it was possible to actually live a life of satisfaction and completeness because our hearts have been gripped by the perfect complete work of Jesus Christ and so while there will always be a longing within us like how Paul describes in Romans 8 there will be a longing where we long for the redemption of our bodies our adoption well, there'll always be that longing. There is very much right now a particular satisfaction that we can have in Christ. And so here in these last three verses, Jesus 
knows that his earthly ministry is finished and right before he breathes his last breath he cries out it is finished and so what what is finished there's multiple things that are finished Christ's life on earth of complete obedience to the father's will and God's law fulfilling all righteousness is finished sin's penalty has been paid for and God's Wrath has been poured out, that is finished, paid in full. And that's actually what these, these words, which is just one word in the original language, it's often used to convey this idea of a bill you know, being completely paid and redeemed. And so it is with our sin. I think also something that is finished is this finished picture of God's love for humanity, which is best seen on the cross. But there's more to it than that. There are further implications of this finished work for us today that can bring a sense of completeness to our lives now as we await the consummation of God's redemptive work. Because here's the thing, you can objectively know about the cross. Like if you've been hanging around church long enough, you can objectively know that Christ's sins, sorry, Christ has paid for your sins and you have forgiveness And you can objectively know that, yet you can live a life right now that is spiritually incomplete and unsatisfied. And we've become very good in the Western church in allowing people to feel comfortable in identifying as a Christian, yet living lives that are completely untransformed by the gospel. And so although you attend church and maybe a weekly small group, maybe you serve on a team. These have kind of become the modern 21st century ideas of what a Christian looks like in the Western church. You might tick all of those boxes, yet you might have no deep satisfaction in Jesus that actually affects the way you live, that affects the way you work in your office job, that affects the way you engage with your neighbours. And so outwardly, it looks like you're a Christian because you tick these boxes. Yet inwardly, there remains this lingering sense of dissatisfaction and incompleteness within you. And sometimes this is so deep that you're actually unaware of it. Like Sometimes this incompleteness that you have is so far from completeness that you actually end up thinking that your incompleteness is completeness. If that makes sense. It's like a Laodicean complex, which Laodicea was the church in Revelation 3 that Jesus addressed, one of the seven. And these people in Laodicea uh, had a very nice life. And they said, oh, well, we've acquired wealth. We have need of nothing. And Jesus says, wrong. You're pitiful, poor, wretched, miserable, blind. You're so incomplete. You're so incomplete, you don't even realize it. So this is a huge thing that we have to grasp because if we don't allow the reality of Christ's redemptive work to actually penetrate our hearts, then you will look for completeness in every other superficial and temporary thing in this world and it will lead you on a futile path to deeper and deeper dissatisfaction and discontentment. And so I would say that something fundamental that is finished with Christ's work on the cross, 
that bears huge implications for us now, something that is finished, is the bondage of our appetites to try and be pleased with anything else other than Christ. That's what's finished. Let me explain. So before Christ, our hearts were so bent in on themselves that we only ever sought satisfaction in things that will please ourselves and our fleshly desires in temporary and superficial things. And I believe that that bent is broken as a stronghold of sin over our lives is obliterated by Christ on the cross. Augustine of Hippo, who was a very famous Christian in the 4th and 5th century, he actually struggled with a very long pursuit of trying to find satisfaction in sexual promiscuity and worldly pleasures. And he wrestled with this for a long time. And he writes about it in his book, Confessions. And he says, Of God, I abandon you to pursue the lowest things of your creation. And then Augustine had this pivotal moment in his life where one day he was reading through Romans 13 and he got to the point in Romans 13 where Paul says, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what Augustine says when those words pierced his heart. He wrote, It had become sweet to me to be without the sweets of folly and sin. What I once feared to lose was now a delight to dismiss. You turned them out and entered to take their place, pleasanter than any pleasure. Augustine found that only true satisfaction for those deep and misplaced desires that we all have was found wholly in Jesus Christ. And so he says that Christ, you entered in all of those places that I was looking to find satisfaction. You just kicked yourself in and you are pleasanter than any pleasure. And now I'm glad to lose those things because I found a treasure that is so much more satisfying. And so I want to show you how Christ and the cross completes us and is able to satisfy these deep desires. I want to show that in two ways of how Christ and the cross completes us. And I want to finish with two ways of how this might look, particularly in a culture that is ours. So the first way of how Christ and the cross completes us is that Christ's obedience to death on a cross becomes the means by which we are restored to obedience. Let me explain. We, we were created for obedience, right? We were created to worship God, to be in communion with God. And obedience is good and not burdensome if the means by which you are obedient is what you are actually designed to do. Like if I'm driving down a highway and I'm going 110 kilometers an hour and I see those signs that are saying slow down, hairpin turn, 35 kilometers per hour. And if I start thinking to myself, well, I don't want to submit to this oppressive regime. I don't want you to burden my own freedom and my ability to choose. I'm going to take this corner at 110. That would be just absolute stupidity, absolute, absolutely idiotic of me. Because that was there for my obedience, for my benefit. 
It was designed for my own safety. Likewise, God's instructions, God's word, his law is actually a means of grace toward his people because it's the best way they are to live. And so if we can't do that, if we can't, if sin has so corrupted us that we can't live in accordance with God's law, then we will be incomplete. But see, here's where Jesus steps in because Jesus did, Jesus lived in that way. In Hebrews 5, the author describes Jesus' life and he says Jesus was heard by the Father because of his reverent submission, learning obedience through what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. See, God didn't lay aside the need for absolute obedience to his will, but he stepped in and came incarnate in himself to live that life that we never could and achieve the perfect obedience to God's will. And so the obedience of the Son becomes the means by which we as a disobedient people are restored and brought back into complete relationship with our Father and actually able to be obedient. The point is that we get to be obedient, not that we have to. We couldn't do it before. You have to understand that without, without obedience to God's will, without obedience to God's word, you will not be complete. Let me show you. In John 15, just a few chapters earlier that you would have gone through, Jesus talks to his disciples about abiding in his words and, and remaining in his love. And he says in verse 10 of John 15, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And then he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete or full. Christ's finished work allows us to remain in his love in this path of obedience, which then allows our joy to be complete. Because obedience is tied to joy and tied to completeness. See, because without the ability to walk in obedience to God's word, which we did not have before Christ, and if you were to continue living in ignorance to that, you will always be incomplete because you'll never be doing what you were created for. The second way that this brings completeness is Christ on the cross takes the full cup of wrath which prevented us from the fullness of God and his joy. And joy is a huge thing. Like joy is satisfying, right? Joy makes us feel full. We all want joy. But sin prevents us from true joy because, as it says in Psalm 16, 11, in your presence, in God's presence, is the fullness of joy. And so sin actually prevents us from true, true joy because God cannot tolerate any sin, unatoned for sin in his immediate presence. And so without atonement, which is something to make us one, a sacrifice to make us one, which is where we get the word atonement, at one without something to actually make us one, we always remain separated from God and his joy because of sin. But Christ on the cross takes away that barrier, that which was preventing us from God's presence. 
And so this was the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple. Like if you remember in the Old Testament, there was the, the tabernacle that was sent up. There was where God's name would dwell. His presence would dwell among his people. But because God cannot tolerate unatoned for sin, he had to create a very complex sacrificial system and a priestly order to mediate between God and his people so that the people would not be consumed by this holy God. Like in Exodus 19, before God gives the commands, he, he explains to Moses, he says, hey, don't let these people push through and come near me or they'll perish, they'll die. Now, in light of Christ and the cross, the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 explains that all of this, all of the tabernacle, and that system was actually pointing to Jesus, when Christ as our mediator would come and make atonement and make perfect atonement, become that completely sufficient sacrifice and enter the more perfect tabernacle, as the author of Hebrews explains it, to once and for all cleanse God's people and to allow us into the presence of God. And so we now have access to the fullness of God where in his presence is the fullness of joy at his right hand of pleasures forevermore because there's no more wrath. This is huge. This can so often just remain some sort of theological idea, but like, get this, there's no more wrath for God's children, for his elect. And if you have read through the book of Zephaniah at the, the end of Zephaniah chapter 3. It's describing God and his relationship to his restored people. And there's this beautiful uh, verse at the end of chapter 3 where God actually says of his restored people, I will rejoice over them with singing. Do you get that picture of God? And do you understand that with no more wrath, God's pleasure is on you. This God of heaven and earth who created everything rejoices over you with singing over his restored people. So Christ becomes the gate by which we enter God's presence and we experience this fullness of joy. And the thing about this joy, Jesus says in John 16 to comfort his disciples, he says, now is your time of grief but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. See, this joy in Christ is not circumstantial. It's able to coexist with all of the terrible trials and sufferings that you will most definitely go through. This joy undergirds us. This joy isn't the kind of joy where you think you need to put on a fake smile. This joy is what undergirds you when you are weeping and absolutely broken because your mum has just died or you've just been dealt that terminal illness. And this joy undergirds everything because we realize that joy of the Lord is the hope which we have that one day all things will be made right. God will restore. And so that's why Paul could say, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because this joy that Christ freely gives, only he can take away. And he has promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you. That he'll be with you now, even to the end of the age. 
And see, if you have this joy, then you have a particular fullness, a completeness, that if you didn't have, if you don't have this joy, you will spend the rest of your life trying to find in unsatisfying, superficial, temporary ways that will only create more of an insatiable desire for that inherent human need for this kind of joy and satisfaction. I want to finish now with looking at what this complete life looks like now. So I want to give two pictures of what completeness like this looks like in this moment. And the first is that a complete life lives in contemplative reflection of the cross and worshipful obedience to God's mission. So while Jesus, while his work on the cross, while that work on the cross is finished with regard to our sin being completely paid for and dealt with, there is no more wrath. While that is finished, something begins for people the moment they are joined to Christ, the moment they call upon the name of Jesus. And that is the privilege of joining in on God's mission now. His mission for his people, which centers around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is completeness because it's what we were meant to do. Like if we understand mission, mission can sometimes be this big, complex thing. If we understand mission as purpose, as everything that God is calling his people to be and to do, that is our mission. Everything that God is calling us to be and to do is his people. And so there's a lot in that, and I know you guys are about to go into your mission month where you'll probably unpack this a lot more, but one of the primary things of this that we are called to be and to do is to represent God. This was actually the call given to humanity in the garden to represent God, to bear his image. But that was, of course, lost in the fall. That was lost. That was corrupted and stained by sin. Now, I'm not an artist, but I, I know that uh, many centuries ago, when artists were painting beautiful portraits of people, over time, those beautiful portraits would become corroded and corrupted and just unrecognizable. And what would have to happen is the artist couldn't repaint it based off that picture because it was too corrupted. They would actually have to get the person to come back and resit for that painting. And if we were made in the image of God and initially ref reflected his image, whilst all of humanity continues to bear God's image, it's corroded and it's corrupted by sin. We don't bear it in the way we were supposed to. And so someone has to come back and resit. And so in steps Jesus as the visible image of the invisible God and he comes back as the perfect human to resit for humanity to restore that image so that we, by being in Christ, can now share in that restored image of God, that renewed and restored image of Christ, which is why in 2 Corinthians 3, when Paul explains, we now with unveiled faces behold God's glory or reflect God's glory as we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And see, this is where the crux of contemplative reflection leads to worshipful obedience. Because when you truly sit at the feet of Jesus, like when you truly sit 
at, at the foot of the cross, the feet of Jesus, and you look deeply at this story of a Savior who is willing to suffer such an excruciating death to bring reconciliation, then that leads to worshipful obedience because it can't not. Leslie Newbegin, who was a, a 20th century missionary, he describes mission as an explosion of joy. Like that's what mission is, an explosion of joy within us that just can't be contained. And we've seen how God in Christ has removed the barrier from his presence and we've seen how in his presence is the fullness of joy. And so the starting place of mission is to enjoy and delight in God's presence and allow that joy to overflow and explode as was God's purpose in mission. And so if you feel overwhelmed by mission or if you don't feel a sense of your own involvement in God's mission, then can I just say the starting place, the starting place for you is just to put yourself in a posture of delight and satisfaction in God's incredible saving work. Just enjoy it. Because if you don't have that, like if that's not your starting place, then everything that you try and do will only simply be trying to feel yourself or trying to be something that you see everyone doing and it will end up exhausting and discontent. Whereas if you put yourself in a posture of just enjoying this saving work, something builds up within you and it overflows and explodes into mission. And the second and, and final way uh, of how this complete life looks is a complete life is satisfied in Christ. See, fullness is, is found in a life that is fully committed to Christ. And all throughout John's gospel, which I know you guys have gone through for a while, all throughout John's gospel, he is painting this picture of Jesus as the fullness of life. He starts in, in chapter 1 as saying, in him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of man. And then in John 10, Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd. And he says that he has come to give life and life abundantly or life to the full. And all of this culminates in this very event that we have been talking about today where Christ on the cross gives up his life so that we might receive true, abundant life, life to the full. And that life is one that is satisfied in Christ. See, without this, we will constantly have this lingering sense, this lingering need to find satisfaction in every single temporary and superficial thing of this world, whether it be a job title, that status in your workplace, whether it be a holiday. But these will all be a very shallow substitute. All of these things are just a pursuit for some kind of joy and fulfillment that is inherent within humanity and they will simply be misguided and misplaced if not put in Jesus Christ. All these desires stem from a dissatisfied heart. You see, in Psalm 145, in verse 16, God is described 
And it says of God, you open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. And that doesn't mean that God is going to give you that Lexus and satisfy that desire. That means that by turning yourself to God, that desire that you have that is misplaced becomes satisfied in the all-consuming God. And so if you continue to come to anything other than the hand of God, you will forever remain unsatisfied. You will forever remain discontent. Because what could be more satisfying, right? What could be more satisfying than being brought into the loving embrace of a Savior who is willing to suffer this excruciating death to redeem his church, to enter into the presence of a God who rejoices over his people with singing? And if you saturate yourself in this love, you will find a satisfaction that completes your deepest desires. The finished work of Christ allows us to be free from discontent and dissatisfied hearts. This is why Paul in Philippians 4 could say, I've, I've learned the secret to being content. I've learned how to live being well-fed or hungry, being in affliction or abundance. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm content. I can give or take these things. Just give me Christ. And so this completeness comes when you see Christ as all satisfying. If I can just give you one really simple point of application for this, something that I try and do uh, every morning is just a simple prayer, praying through Psalm 90 and particularly verse 14. Because in verse 14 of Psalm 90, Moses says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. And I need to pray that every morning because... My desire can so often be to find satisfaction in something else. And so I need to pray, God, satisfy me today. Satisfy my restless heart. I don't want to be looking for satisfaction in something that's only going to create more dissatisfaction and more of an insatiable desire. I want to be satisfied in you. And so would you satisfy my heart in your unfailing love this morning? Would you put me in a posture of contentment so I could actually say hey I can go well fed or hungry I can give or take this stuff these COVID restrictions I'm content because I have Christ my heart is satisfied see the moment you leave here you'll have thousands literally thousands you're exposed to thousands of advertisements every single day that are telling you that are just shaping you to create this desire for more. And they'll be trying to grab at your intention, convince you that you need that thing to be satisfied. And so whether you like it or not, you're shaped by this world. And the only thing that will protect you from going down that futile path of insatiable desires and discontent hearts is to come to know Christ as all-satisfying and saturate yourselves in this complete work, in this beautiful story of redemption, and come to know this God who opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing, and we can enjoy that now because it is finished. Let me pray. Our Father, 
We so often have restless hearts and we know that our restless hearts will remain restless until they find their perfect rest in you. So would you give us that today? Would you give us a sense of deep satisfaction in your unfailing love? Would you help us to be able to be content in you, to not just be striving for more or even more than that, bring conviction upon us where we are so incomplete that we think we're complete. Bring us to the foot of your cross today and satisfy our hearts because you are all satisfying. You are the God of heaven and earth. You stretched out the heavens like a canopy and you breathed life into existence. So open your hand today and satisfy our hearts and may we be a people that are content in Christ and by doing that, may we bring great glory to your name as we are a people who demonstrate such a profound love in you. I ask that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.